Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to start our discussion that's probably going to go for a couple episodes, and we want to dive into the realm of OB over the next couple talks, and specifically on this talk, we want to discuss the changes related to pregnancy from a cardiovascular standpoint, a respiratory standpoint, all the different body systems that are going to occur during pregnancy, and then in subsequent episodes, we're going to go into the actual care during delivery, the neonatal care, and everything else that goes around that realm. So today, Tanner, do you just want to start us off here with the main hormones that we're going to see that are going to cause these changes? Right. And like Cole said, we're going to take a few episodes to talk about these things. So we'll kind of break this down into smaller increments. Today, we want to specifically talk about the different changes that we'll see. We'll begin here with the hormones that change. And the main one that you want to think about here is progesterone. So progesterone levels will increase throughout the pregnancy, and this is to prepare the uterus for pregnancy. The main thing here with the respiratory system is it's going to be a respiratory stimulant, and so they'll have increased minute ventilation. It also is a bronchodilator, and so you'll have an increased minute ventilation, and then you'll also have bronchodilation as well. The other big thing that progesterone does is it will activate your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So your RAS system will increase, which will increase your levels of aldosterone. And if you remember back from our renal discussion, that will increase your salt, increase your water. This can lead to your generalized swelling, edema in the feet, hands. And so you'll have an increased fluid volume that is circulating here because of the activation of this RAS system. You'll have a decreased SVR. So now talking a little bit more about cardiac side of things, your afterload, your SVR will be decreased. We'll talk about this later, but when we're talking about specific medications, this increase in progesterone will also increase the patient's sensitivity to local anesthetics. As far as it goes for their anesthesia, the increased progesterone level is going to decrease their MAC. And so you'll need less of the volatile anesthetic. And then it will decrease their lower esophageal sphincter tone. So you may want to consider an RSI simply because these patients may be at increased risk for aspiration. Yeah. And so from what I'm finding, it seems like most of the changes that we're going to talk about today are a result of that increased progesterone level. So as Tanner talked about some of the main changes that we would see from specifically progesterone being elevated, there's also an increase in estrogen. So estrogen similarly is going to increase your RAS system. So you're going to have that increase in aldosterone, which is going to keep water pooling back from the kidney, keep sodium coming back and then excreting potassium. So you're going to see more of a picture here of hypervolemic patients because they're having to increase their blood volume in order to supply blood both to themselves and as well as the fetus. So that makes sense from that standpoint. But we don't see as much vasoconstriction with this increase in RAS system. And this is simply because the receptors for angiotensin 2 are not going to be as prevalent. And so while we're making more angiotensin 2 that would normally cause vasoconstriction and an increased SVR, we're actually going to see some vasodilation. So we're not going to have that vasoconstriction picture, even though we're increasing this RAS system. And the other hormone we want to talk about is relaxin. Relaxin is going to cause the release of more nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, if you recall, is a vasodilator. So that's, again, why we're going to have a decreased SVR and not an increased SVR, even though we are stimulating this RAS system. 
So those are the three big hormones that are going to be elevated. You're going to have progesterone, estrogen, and relaxin. Obviously, there's a slew more that we're not going to talk about, but those are the main three. Now we want to go into the different body systems. So to start off with respiratory, as you can imagine, if you remember from our last few talks on positioning and obesity patients, geriatric patients, we talked about how the abdominal contents pushing up and down on the diaphragm are going to affect your FRC, your pressures in your lung, the compliance of the lung. Well, if you can imagine here, if you're growing a baby inside of you, it's going to be shifting the uterus up towards the head, which is going to decrease our FRC simply because we're going to have a decreased expiratory reserve volume and residual volume. That makes complete sense in my mind. You're having a baby literally push up on the lungs and you're going to decrease the amount of reserve that the patient can have. But what's interesting here is you would think, if you remember from earlier conversations, that the tidal volume would be decreased because of this. It actually is not. The, the tidal volume's increased, and this threw me off at first, but from what I found to explain this, the ribs kind of rearrange themselves in a way that makes the lungs bigger from an anterior-posterior direction, so you can get more volume in the lungs from that direction, even though it's being compressed from the bottom. So hopefully that makes sense that even though your FRC is decreased, you're going to have an increased tidal volume. Carbon dioxide will decrease and they will have chronically lower CO2. The kidneys will compensate by eliminating bicarb. And so your kidneys will be very useful here to maintain your pH balance because overall you're going to have a decreased CO2 level. Your oxygen consumption will increase by about 20%. The mom has more oxygen demands here with growing a baby inside of them. And so their oxygen consumption will increase. And again, this could be problematic because of the decreased FRC. But like Cole mentioned, there's some changes that allow them to actually continue having their increased tidal volumes. They're more likely to desaturate faster upon induction. This is due to the decreased FRC and increased oxygen consumption during pregnancy. So again, if you remember back from the obesity discussion, for clarification, for colonized safety, we are not comparing pregnancy and obesity. <laughs> but think about from our obesity section, when you talk about obesity and how they have those metabolically active adipose tissue, they were at increased risk to desaturate because of the decreased FRC, and they also had increased oxygen consumption. It's very similar here. Again, I'm not comparing the two, but you have similarities here where you have a decreased FRC and then they have an increased oxygen consumption because again, that increases by about 20%. So it's going to be really important that you pre-oxygenate these patients well because you're not going to have a lot of time from your induction to when you can actually intubate these patients. Again, if this is like an emergency section or something like that, you may not have the luxury of uh, adequate pre-oxygenation. Something to keep in mind, though, that they are going to desaturate quicker than your other patients might. Yeah, and it's important to note here that depending on when you're taking care of a pregnant patient, whether it's in the first trimester all the way up to term, their oxygen consumption is going to increase the closer they get to term and be the most during labor. I saw that it increases as much as 100% from baseline by the time they're actually in labor, which makes sense that if you're pushing a baby outside of you, you're going to be using a lot of oxygen to do that. And so that's going to be the highest oxygen consumption that we have. So let's say you're taking care of a patient that has been pushing 
for the last couple hours or has been laboring for the last couple hours and they have to switch it to an emergency section, they're already going to be in a state of burning so much oxygen that you'd expect that they're going to desat very quickly when you're trying to induce them. So just keep that in mind. In terms of the P50 curve with the oxyhemoglobin curve, you're going to compare the mom and the baby here. So if you recall, anything that causes a left shift is going to cause the hemoglobin to hold on to the oxygen more. So I think left is love. So if the curve is shifted to the left, it's going to cause the oxygen to be held tighter to that hemoglobin. If it's to the right, I think R right for release. And so it's going to release that oxygen. Well, the P50 is basically the spot here at which 50% of that hemoglobin is going to have the oxygen. This curve is going to shift to the right in the mom, meaning that it's going to want to release oxygen more from the hemoglobin. Why does this make sense? So when this hemoglobin is going past the placenta, you want that oxygen to be released and go across the placenta so that we can give oxygen to the fetus. So that's why the P50 shifts to the right so that the hemoglobin is more likely to release that oxygen whereas the fetus is going to be more to the left and try to attract and, and grab that oxygen. So hopefully that makes sense. That makes sense in my mind. When I think of the oxyhemoglobin curve, the only other brain trick that I use is for left, I think left over. So if it goes to the left, you have oxygen left over when it comes back to the heart. So that basically means it didn't get rid of it at the tissues. So whatever helps you, if it's love, left over, to the right, you release it. The CRNA team at Memorial Health is growing. Our team performs more than 30,000 surgeries annually and offers a variety of cases from general, OB, GI, ortho, cardiac, vascular, and more. Memorial has a 24-7 OR with flexible scheduling in 8, 10, or 12-hour shift options. Our CRNAs receive PTO and sick time alongside competitive salaries, relocation assistance, and a sign-on bonus of up to $250,000. We hire CRNAs as early as their second year in school and can offer financial assistance to complete your program. Learn for yourself why Memorial means more. Text CRNA to 217-588-5627 to speak with a recruiter. The next thing we want to talk about is the cardiovascular system. And we're going to park here for a minute because this is going to be very important to consider for your patients. Cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of pregnancy-related death, so we need to have a really good understanding of the changes that occur here and how this might impact our patient. One of the really incredible things to me is that your cardiac output will increase by 30 to 50% by term. At the time of delivery, it's going to increase 80 to 100%, which just blows my mind when you think about increasing your cardiac output 100%. And then it will return to the pre-labor baseline within two days of delivery. It will take a little bit longer to go back to pre-pregnancy value. That will take a few weeks to go back to the pre-pregnancy cardiac output. Your stroke volume and heart rate will increase. So your heart rate will increase as much as 25%. If it's greater than 100 beats per minute, though, then that's something that may be a concern and should be evaluated it's going to be highest in the third trimester. So again, the closer you get to labor, then your heart rate is going to continue to increase. So it just makes sense. I mean, your cardiac output made up of stroke volume, heart rate. And so your stroke volume is going to increase. We know we have increased fluid moving around. Your heart rate is going to increase. Again, you don't want that over 100. But combined, you have an increased cardiac output picture. And 
you're pumping all of this against a decreased SVR. We talked about that with the hormones previously. Your progesterone specifically will decrease your SVR. And so you have overwhelmingly increased cardiac output picture. Yeah, and it's good to note here with the heart rate, when we say if it's above 100 to check it out, more from what I'm seeing is during pregnancy. When they come in in pain, in labor, I would expect their heart rate to be above 100. You're a superwoman if you can be in labor and just have a normal 60 beats per minute heart rate. So if your patient comes in above 100 in that sense, that shouldn't warrant red flags for you. Obviously, if it's like 180, 190, that's a different picture. But if they're coming in in their second trimester for some procedure and they're above 100, then you should start to look at why that's the case. As Tanner said, we're going to have this increase in volume. And again, that's from the progesterone, from increasing the aldosterone, bringing all that extra water in. And so you're going to have this picture here where we're growing our plasma volume by as much as 40 or 50%. So if you take a five liter blood volume from a normal patient and you add 50% to that, now we're at upwards of seven and a half liters. So you're thinking this is a lot of extra fluid that the heart is having to pump through. And as a result, you can have some left ventricular hypertrophy that develops, which completely makes sense. You're, you're trying to pump out all this extra stroke volume to keep this cardiac output elevated. And as a result here over the, the nine months of pregnancy, you're going to have this enlargement. Now, from what I've seen, it's not necessarily going to stay this way after pregnancy in a typical patient. So in a a mom that has multiple pregnancies, it's not just going to keep building and building and building on itself where you develop this heart failure-like picture. However, though, this does paint a picture in our head that we need to watch out for cardiomyopathy in these patients and how this is going to shift your EKG strips. You're going to have your QRS actually shift to the right more in the first trimester. And then as you get closer to term in the third trimester, it'll actually shift back to the left. You're also going to have some left axis deviation and this is mainly because your uterus is pushing up on that diaphragm, pushing up on that heart, and it's going to push the heart up to the left. So you're going to see that left axis deviation in these patients, especially the further along they get in their pregnancy. So hopefully that makes sense. But the one other thing we want to get at here with cardiovascular changes is you're not going to have an elevated blood pressure normally. We'll get into this later when we talk about preeclampsia and eclampsia. That's a different picture. But in a normal pregnant patient, you should not see an increase in blood pressure. And again, that is because even though we're increasing our cardiac output, we have a decreased SVR and we just have a bigger volume that is being spread out throughout the body. So you should not see this elevated blood pressure. That would send red flags in your head that something else is going on if your patient comes in in their second trimester and they have hypertension. Next, let's move on to some hematological changes that will occur with these patients. Think here, mainly everything goes up. The only thing that will really decrease or remain normal is your platelets. Your patients are going to be hypercoagulable, and this will be due to the fact that they are trying to prevent bleeding during labor. So it's very useful. Unfortunately, this is still an area that is of major concern. And honestly, the United States does not do very well as far as managing hemorrhage after delivery of the baby. But your patient overall, again, will be hypercoagulable. This will be because of increased clotting factors. You should know that the platelets will decrease or remain normal. Your white blood cells will increase. And then as you're talking about red blood cells, your red blood cells overall will increase by about 20 to 30%. But the catch here is that because of your RAS system and all of this additional fluid, you're actually going to have a dilutional picture. And so you'll see actually anemia here with your red blood cell level 
due to the dilutional effect of all the additional fluid. This won't really affect the patient as far as like a hypoxic picture or something because of the anemia, because the cardiac output is increased so drastically that it compensates. But you should know that it's very typical to see a patient that comes in who looks anemic. Again, this is not necessarily because of the actual numbers of red blood cells. Those are increased. It's just due to all of the additional circulating volume. So next we want to move into the GI tract. And the big thing with the GI tract that I think is all on our minds is we consider these patients an RSI automatically for the fact that we don't want them to have aspiration of gastric contents. And you have this chemical burn, if you will, in the lungs simply because the gastric contents has such a low pH. So this is known as Mendelssohn syndrome. Typically to correct this, we give bicitra before surgery to neutralize the acid or some other medication to try to limit the burn that would occur if we would have aspiration occur. And then also this is why we tend to do an RSI to limit the risk of having the patient have aspiration occur during this time period. The reasons why the patient is more at risk, one, they're going to have a decreased pH in their gastric system. So they're going to be more acidic in their gastric area. They're going to have lower esophageal sphincter tone, as Tanner talked about before with the progesterone causing that. So they're going to be more likely to have some reflux or some GERD occur. Their gastric volume is going to increase. And gastric emptying, this is something that fluctuates. So during pregnancy, the gastric emptying is going to remain normal. But during labor, maybe it's due to the opioids that we give, the pain that they're in, the different environment that's going on at that time, they're going to have a decrease in gastric emptying, which is then going to increase that volume even more and put the patient more at risk for aspiration. So the biggest thing here is just know that we're really concerned about Mendelssohn syndrome occurring from aspiration. And to, do, to limit that, we try to neutralize the acid and do an RSI if we can. Moving on to the kidneys. The big thing here with the kidneys is you're going to have an increase in size simply because they're having more perfusion from that increase in blood volume, and they're going to have to filter out more volume. So their GFR is going to be increased. So with the increase in GFR, let's talk about creatinine clearance. So remember, creatinine clearance is how well the kidneys can clear that creatinine off the plasma. That's actually going to be increased now. And so it's going to be increased about 140 to 160 milliliters per minute. And then you're going to see on the flip side, your BUN plasma levels decrease then throughout pregnancy. Another thing that's normal is you're going to see glucose being more prevalent simply because we are increasing that GFR so much and we're filtering out that fluid so fast that you're going to be seeing some sugar and some glucose levels in the urine. That's not abnormal. What is abnormal is to see protein in the urine. And again, we'll talk about that on a later episode. And then remember, as Tanner mentioned before, our blood gas in these patients are going to be altered to the sense that we're going to have an increase in PaO2 from that increase in oxygen consumption. You're going to have a decrease in PaCO2 simply because we have an increased minute ventilation to drive that CO2 lower. And as a result, our kidneys need to compensate to keep our pH level normalized. So the kidneys will eliminate more bicarb to then decrease that pH back to a normal level, which makes sense because if you're chronically at a low CO2, you're going to have an alkalotic picture. So getting rid of that bicarb is going to bring us back more to baseline. Next thing we want to talk about is going to be the nerves, muscles, skeletal system. There's just so much here that I had no idea about prior to learning about this. First thing is you have some lordosis, so you'll have some curvature of the spine and some changes with the spine which can be problematic, especially if we're talking about doing an epidural or spinal anesthesia. 
you may have some alterations there that might make the anatomy a little bit tricky. Keep that in mind. That's, that's a normal finding. They'll have increased sensitivity to local anesthetics. We talked about this up when we were talking about the different hormones. Again, progesterone will play into this, but they'll have an increased sensitivity to local anesthetics. So you may need to decrease your dose there. It's not uncommon that women will have tingling or pain in their hands, even carpal tunnel syndrome. And so that's a fairly common finding with patients who are pregnant. So now moving on to the liver, this is just a quick note here. Your serum albumin and your pseudocolonesterase will decrease. So immediately there should be some red flags going off in your brain thinking, well, if these patients are at more risk for RSI and then also they have decreased pseudocolonesterase, isn't that going to change my duration of action for sucks? There's been some debate, but overall the general thought is that this will actually not increase the length of duration of succinylcholine. And so you don't need to alter your dosages of sucks when you're doing an RSI in these patients, but do keep in mind that they will have decreased pseudocholinesterase activity. What's probably more important is that you'll have, again, this decreased in serum albumin. And so you're not going to have as much drug binding in the intervascular space. And so you'll have more free drug that is available. And so they may be more sensitive or they may have more of an effect since they are not bound to the albumin. Next, we want to talk about neurochanges. So your subarachnoid and epidural volume is going to be decreased, mainly due to compression from epidural vein volume being increased. So if you think about all that extra fluid in the vascular system, the epidural veins are going to comply and expand and fill a lot of volume, which is going to compress then the subarachnoid and epidural spaces. So just keep in mind there that that is the main reason why this is decreased so that they'll have an altered dose of how much we want to give for our spinal anesthesia. But again, that's for a later talk. As Tanner mentioned earlier, progesterone levels that are increased are going to decrease our MAC. So just keep in mind that we're not going to need as high of a MAC for these procedures, especially the farther along that these patients are in their pregnancy. Moving on to more of the pregnancy-related organ systems now. Let's talk about the uterus. So the uterus typically gets about 100 mils per minute of cardiac output. During pregnancy, though, it's going to increase to about 10% of the overall cardiac output, which relates to about 750 mils per minute at term. So we're going from 100 mils per minute pre-pregnancy to now about 750 mils per minute at term. That's a drastic change here. Specifically speaking about when contractions occur now, when the uterus contracts, it is going to block the amount of blood flow that can go into the uterus itself. And as a result, the body's basically going to get an auto transfusion to the rest of itself simply because 10% of that cardiac output that normally was going to the uterus is now going to be shifted to other parts of the body during the contraction. Another thing to mention here is that uterine blood flow is not auto regulated. So other body systems like the kidneys, the brain, they can shift based on different systemic blood pressures to neutralize and balance out how much blood flow they get. This is not the case for the uterus. So the uterus is pretty much dependent on the maternal blood flow and the maternal blood pressure. In situations where the mom is going to have a decreased blood pressure during the procedure, you got to keep in mind here that the uterus is not able to compensate for that and we should be concerned about not getting enough blood flow to the fetus and not getting enough oxygen to the fetus. There are some different medications that we give, especially during labor, if the patient's hypotensive, 
the big thing that I'm seeing is there's a lot of debate between giving Neo versus ephedrine. Studies have shown that giving Neo does not necessarily decrease the oxygen being delivered to the fetus. There's actually an increase in pH levels in the fetus, which means that they are getting enough oxygen because if they weren't getting oxygen, they would start producing lactic acid and have more of that lower pH picture. So studies have shown that you can really give either Neo or ephedrine to these patients. So an important thing to consider here is the uterine vascular resistance. And so while we're giving these different medications, vasopressin, epinephrine, phenylephrine or ephedrine, all these different catecholamines, you're going to have increased uterine vascular resistance. You'll also have decreased perfusion pressure because of positioning. So you're at risk for aortocaval compression. So if you're laying on your back, then you can have compression there to those main vessels and cause some decreased perfusion pressure. Additional things that will cause this would be hemorrhage or the sympathectomy from your blockade. Other things that can cause increased uterine vascular resistance would be obviously your uterine contractions. And then this is probably less of an issue, but something to keep on your radar if a patient is having a seizure, then that will increase your vascular resistance. So once we get the blood into the uterus and to the placenta, let's talk about how things shift across. The main way that we get substances such as gases or drugs across into the fetus is through diffusion. There are other ways for bigger molecules to have either active transport or facilitated transport, but for the main reason that we're concerned with for our gases and our drugs, we're talking about diffusion. So what is going to increase the diffusion of these medications and gases across the placenta? This is the same picture in my mind as when we're talking about the blood-brain barrier. So this is a lipid membrane where things that are lipid soluble are going to be more likely to cross, things that are smaller are going to cross more frequently, and things that are unionized are going to cross more frequently. If you remember from our previous talks, unionized medications, we consider more of a lipid soluble picture, whereas ionized drugs are not able to cross as well because they're more of a water soluble picture. So what are some medications that are going to be able to freely and easily cross through? Some big ones that we're going to deal with are opioids, benzos, our volatile anesthetics, beta blockers, our local anesthetics. Thankfully, our neuromuscular blockers don't pass. We don't want the baby to be delivered and be blocked. That would be a not good situation. Just know that for reversal medications, our Sugamidex will not cross over. But if you remember for our anticholinergic medications that we give, the ones that cross the blood-brain barrier are going to be the same picture here and can cross the placenta. So atropine and scopolamine are going to be able to cross, but not your glycopyrrolate. So don't make this overly complicated. Don't try to just remember a strict set of things that do or don't. I mean, this all ties in together. We're we're really talking about this biomembrane, things that will cross and won't cross. Like Cole mentioned, we already know a lot of this because of the blood-brain barrier. And so it's not like a whole nother list that you need to remember. Just remember the things that are smaller, less weight that are non-ionized are going to want to cross over into Mm -hmm. the fetus. Mm. Yeah, that's a good thing to address here is that we're not necessarily adding a whole new list that we need to memorize. This is just building upon what we already know. Another thing that we really already have talked about before is the idea of ion trapping. So this is not a new concept. I believe we discussed this when we did local anesthetics. The idea here is that non-ionized medications are going to freely cross the membrane. Ionized medications are not. 
If you remember, vocal anesthetics are weak bases. And from our local anesthetic talk, I explained that the more basic something is compared to the solution it is, the more likely it is to become ionized. So think your, your normal pH is around 7.4 in the blood. If we're dealing with an acidic drug, the more acidic it is and the farther away it is from that 7.4, the more likely it is to become ionized. And the same thing for basic medications. The further basic we are, the higher the pH is away from 7.4, the more likely it is to become ionized. So since we're dealing with these weak bases, weak meaning that they're not very strong on this basic side. So they're close to the 7.4, but above it still. They're hopefully going to be on the most part non-ionized when they come to the placenta, which means they're going to be able to freely cross over. Well, when we get over to the fetal side, the fetal circulation is going to be slightly more acidic than the maternal side. And when this base from the local anesthetic gets into this more acidic environment, it's going to react with the acid and become ionized. When it becomes ionized, now it is not going to be freely able to pass back through the placenta and outside of the fetal circulation. And that's where we get the idea here of ion trapping, because now we have made this local anesthetic trapped in the fetal circulation, where it is going to be more likely to stay longer and cause some systemic toxicity. So you might have some last effects. This is why it's important that you're considering which class of local anesthetics you're giving. If you remember, the ester class is going to be chewed up faster and won't last as long. So this would be a better class of drugs to give from a local anesthetic standpoint, simply because we're going to decrease the risk of the systemic toxicity occurring when this ion trapping occurs. Perfect. I feel like that was a helpful synopsis of how those drugs will behave, especially here when we're talking about crossing over the placenta. Last thing we want to talk about, and we'll wrap up this discussion, is intubation. So we've already touched on this briefly. You're going to want to do an RSI for these patients, mainly due to the risk for aspiration. You may want to use a specialized handle. It's called a data handle. This is a shorter handle. And so basically when you have all of the breast tissue, abdominal contents, kind of pushing everything forward, you may not have as much space to do your DL. And so there's a special handle there that you can use that may be more appropriate. You're more likely to have a failed intubation. And so especially here in these critical situations, you need to have your plan B and C lined up and ready to go. Do not do a nasal intubation or a nasal airway. Also keep in mind that they have more friable tissue and so they're more likely to bleed. It's going to be more soft and easily injured. And so while you're doing your DL, while you're manipulating the airway, you just need to be very cognizant of what you're doing and be very gentle with these patients because they're at increased risk for having trauma, bleeding, which can then lead to more respiratory complications. And that nasal cavity that tissue there is especially going to be more friable, which is why we're a contraindication in pregnancy to do a nasal intubation on these patients. The other thing here, you're going to have more difficulty intubating these patients. So it's the same kind of picture as obesity. You're going to have extra things in the back of the throat, but it's not an extra amount of tissue. It's more simply because of the extra amount of volume and engorgement in those vessels. You're also going to have an increase in your mound potty score. Your metabolic score, again, will increase simply because of this edema and this swelling in the upper airway and the oral pharynx, which is going to decrease and impede on the view that we're going to have. As a result, some providers just go straight to using the glidoscope and skip doing a direct laryngoscopy because they don't want to go back, try once, miss because of this difficult airway, and the patient now is more susceptible to bleeding. So now you have this patient that is having a ton of blood in the back of the airway and 
you're having to try to intubate again, you have a crashing mom in the C-section, it's just better to simply slip in a glidoscope and get it in and not have to worry about missing and causing this traumatic friable tissue to bleed excessively and decrease the risk and being able to intubate on the next try. So that's the first discussion that we're going to do here on OB. We'll have a few more lined up after this one. We're going to kind of take our time here and work through several different discussions. We want to make sure that we do this justice. And so hopefully this was helpful. Make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that. And we'll catch you on the next episode.